Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today is the third of my occasional summer series on the question of how to respond to mass atrocities. Earlier this summer, I talked with Scott Strauss and Bridget Conley-Zilkich. Later in the summer, I'll conclude by speaking with Carrie Booth Wallen. But today, I have the great pleasure of welcoming James Waller to the show. Jim is Cohen Professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Keene State College and Director of Academic Programs with the Auschwitz Institute for Peace and Reconciliation. Listeners may know him for his earlier book, Becoming Evil, How Ordinary People Commit Genocide and Mass Killing. His most recent book, and the book we'll talk about today, is Confronting Evil, Engaging Our Responsibility to Prevent Genocide, published by Oxford University Press. The book, like the earlier works in our series, is a thoughtful, clearly written and well-researched effort to inform readers of what research says about how best to confront and prevent mass atrocities. But behind the academic objectivity of the prose, least I can feel the ethical imperative coming forth behind every page. It's a compelling read and one that I'm looking forward to discussing. So with that, Jim, welcome to the show and thanks for joining us in New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks, Kelly. It's great to be talking with you. So let's start just by giving you a chance to say a little something about, about how you became an academic and, and how you became an academic interested in the subject of, of, of mass violence. No, thank you. That's a great uh, start question. For me, the question of how I became an academic is kind of a long and convoluted one. I was a first-generation college student, and all I really hoped through was to get through college and get a bachelor's degree. <laughs> but really had an interest kindled by an intro to psychology course, uh, combined that with some longstanding interest in uh, athletics and went on to do a master's degree in psychology, which focused really on racial differences and, and uh, athletic performance. And that kind of kept me down that road of looking at the field of social psychology and issues of race relations, particularly in America. So I kind of just kept affirming my my entry into the job world by going for additional education and just taking it step by step. And uh, once I received my PhD in social psych, wrote a couple of early books on issues of race in the U.S., which was really a compelling interest for me because I'm a child of the South. I was born and raised in Georgia, and I still remember those family vacations of stopping at restaurants or restrooms that had signs for colored white hmm. and seeing those things in life and asking my parents the question, why? Why is this? Why do we have this separation? Where did this come from? And I think really that that simple question of why has never really left me in terms of intergroup relations. And then uh, early in my academic career as a social psychologist, I was able to teach for two summers in Germany, uh, 1990 and 1992. So the fall of the wall in 1990 and seeing those transitions and changes and the courses I taught in Germany focused on intergroup relations, and the students there kept making connections to the Holocaust, their parents, their grandparents, what they did, what they didn't do, where they were, where they weren't, and all of those things I brought back with me to my teaching position, and I found myself referring more and more to the Holocaust and uh, in my own courses in social psychology and intergroup relations, and then I began to attend a couple of conferences on the Holocaust to increase my knowledge and understanding and quickly recognize that there was a niche I felt I could feel with working on perpetrator behavior. Because at that point, Holocaust studies in the mid-1990s, we knew far more about the broad mechanics of mass murder than we knew about the men and women who actually carried out the killing. And I thought my work as a social psychologist could really contribute to understanding the psychology of perpetrator behavior, the rank and file killer, not the architect, not the mid-level bureaucrat, 
but the people on the front line of killing. And that's what led to the first edition of Becoming Evil in 2002 and a second edition in 2007 and soon to be working on a third edition. And as that evolved, the interest in Holocaust studies began to broaden into an interest in genocide studies uh, with Holocaust studies. My work with perpetrators really had to rely on archival interviews, but as I started to look more at face-to-face interviews with perpetrators, it's taken me to Rwanda, to the former Yugoslavia, to Guatemala, to Argentina, really trying to get an understanding of, of how people come to commit these types of atrocities. So all of that has led to my work in genocide studies, and I think at some point there, the important personal dimension for me was I'm spending so much time in understanding perpetrator behavior, but for me, that couldn't be the end of it. It had to be, I'm spending this time understanding perpetrator behavior because I want to help understand how to stop it, how to prevent it. And that led into this emerging field over the past few years of genocide prevention. What can we actually do to make never again a reality? So that's a long answer to a, a pretty long story of a PE major in college who had never studied the Holocaust, never knew about genocide, and somehow ended up after graduate school just following a series of opportunities and interest that led me to uh, to this incredible field that you know again continues to explode as your new book series uh, explores. Just con- continues to explode and develop as a field of study. Yeah, I'm guessing when you were in college, you never had an opportunity to major in genocide or Holocaust studies. And and that's one of the things I'm struck with your position now at Keene is that that new college students actually get to address this in depth. Maybe maybe you could say just a little bit about what you guys hope to accomplish with that there and and what kind of student response you get. That's a great question. We, uh, I accepted the endowed professorship here King State College beginning fall 2010, and that professorship was meant to support the establishment of the first and still only undergraduate college major in Holocaust genocide studies in the U.S. So when I came, uh, we had two or three students who were interested in the field as the major. I think now in our seventh year as a major, we have about 45 majors, uh, wow. at least that many minors, yeah, in a school of about 4,000 students. So, you know, we're a major now bigger in our school than political science or economics or philosophy or American studies. So it really has drawn a tremendous amount of student interest. And I think when the major started, you know, we, we know. We knew students were interested in the intro courses in the Holocaust and genocide studies, and we have students flocked to those courses every semester. But our question was really, you know, what value will people see in majoring uh, in a field like this? And it's just amazing to see the student interest being drawn to it. We're not at a school. Our school, we do not have a human rights major. We don't have a peace studies major. We don't have a social justice major. So a lot of our students are coming to our major because they have those interests. They want to work in human rights organizations. They want to work in museums. Many of them want to go on to law school and specialize in international law. So the exciting part we've seen in our majors, it's really one of those truly interdisciplinary majors where departments, we're the only Holocaust genocide studies department in the country. Hmm. We have a historian. We actually have two historians. We have a religious studies professor, myself as a psychologist. We have affiliated faculty across campus from music to philosophy to history to economics to sociology. So it's exciting to see all these interdisciplinary threads being woven together into a coherent program. And the student response has has been remarkable. And our students who leave here are going to graduate school. They're working. We have two students in Peace Corps, one in Cambodia, one in Rwanda. They're finding their way to organizations like Amnesty International, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. So I think we're, you know, we're still developing and helping people understand the routes they can go with the major, but certainly the interest for it uh, has been remarkable. And as you said, I come from a generation where I, you know, I didn't even have the opportunity to take a course in the Holocaust. I mean, maybe a course in modern 
Eastern European history or something like that. But for this to develop now into its own field of study has really been uh, a remarkable development. And the other place that you've taken your, your expertise outside of the um, university setting is, is working with the Auschwitz Institute for Peace and Reconciliation. So, so maybe you could describe a little bit about what that institute is and what, the, what, what it does and what you try and do there? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Auschwitz Institute for Peace and Reconciliation, uh, AIPR, was founded in 2007 by a New York businessman, a uh, Jewish man who had visited Auschwitz for the first time late in his life and decided that never again had to be a reality and it wouldn't become a reality by academics talking to other academics. His vision very early on was we have to get this information to government officials who are on the front lines of trying to make policy that ensures that never again becomes a reality. So in May 2008, we held our first ever seminar, one week seminar in Auschwitz on the grounds of uh, Auschwitz I, the concentration camp, where for a week we brought government officials from about 20 different countries to the camp to really look at what genocide is, what the warning signs are, and what they can do to make a difference in the face of genocidal uh, violence in their country or their region. I was a teacher in that first institute, as were you know many other people in the field, and over the the years, I've, my teaching involvement has, has continued to evolve to the point that I'm now the director of academic programs for AIPR. Uh, every year we do still a global diplomat seminar at Auschwitz in November, where we bring about 20 or 25 government officials from around the world to that seminar. We do a similar seminar in Spanish for Latin American officials every February. We do follow-up trainings in Africa, Bosnia-Herzegovina, Latin America, literally all over the world. We go for two, three, or one-week uh, trainings for government officials to help government set up actually national offices, national mechanisms of genocide prevention. Mm -hmm. We don't want just a, a person to be trained. We want an actual government office that can make a difference in this. And so to this point, we've trained uh, since 2008 over 1,700 government officials from, I believe, about 75 different countries in the world. Wow. And some of them just, you know, Kelly, making incredible difference uh, in their countries and their home institutions and just really uh, doing remarkable work. So for me, as an academic, to be able to work with this very different professional, specialized audience and to bridge that, that gap between academia in practice, sometimes it's hard to bridge. This has been an incredible, uh, you know, professional opportunity for me, and I think it's informed much of, of what I write about, certainly in confronting evil. The uh, and, and, and so for people who might be be interested in that in the future, there'll be a there'll, there'll be a link to the Auschwitz Institute on the uh, web page for this interview, so you can go there and you can click on that, and and uh, that should give you more information. But that is actually, as I was reading the book, that's what I was thinking, is that this book is in, in many ways um, an attempt for, by you to distill what you've learned uh, in this, this decade or so long process into something manageable that, that ordinary people can read. Is, is, is that the right assumption I'm making? Oh, no, it is. I, I'm thrilled to hear that you're making that assumption because that really is what the intent of the book is, is really, you know, sometimes... I hear people say, well, we just don't know how to stop genocide, and we don't have the tools to stop it. And once it started, the only thing we can do is put in a military force to stop it. And we have, you know, we have a ton of tools we can look at with this, and we have a lot of experience with those tools. Some have been successful, some less successful, but that, that really was, in some ways, an awakening to me is I've worked with these hundreds and hundreds of government officials to realize all the range of tools both government and civil society, civil society have to make a difference in terms of uh, preventing genocide, but I felt that that really hadn't been communicated in any uh, format or any way. So what I wanted to do in the book was try to synthesize what we do know about techniques we have in terms of genocide prevention in practice 
to try to synthesize that for a general audience. I really envisioned as I was writing this book, I kept thinking of the government officials who come to our seminars. I wanted this to be in some way as a textbook for them, but also a textbook for general readers to say, you know, when we feel frustrated that there seems to be no way to stop these things, that genocide menstruosity seemed to be inevitable, I think one of the first steps is recognize there are things that can be done. There are things we have done. There are places where some of this has been successful. And I wanted to pull that, that together in a book that would hopefully be an accessible uh, tool for even citizens in a community. I mean, someone, you know, a group of concerned people in Wichita, Kansas, look at the book and say, you know, there are actually things that citizen activists can do and can push even their elected officials to do to make a difference in the face of this type of violence. So, so the last two-thirds of the book is, is, is fits that schema, but the first third of the book is, is, a, is a very well-done explanation of, of, your, of the history of the idea of genocide or the notion of genocide and a sense of where the, the, the genocide fits into other kinds of violations of human rights. Um, and so I'd just like to ask a couple questions about that before we dive into the, to the other stuff. So I guess I'd ask you to start by saying, how, how, you, you spend a chapter on the, the emergence of the Convention on Genocide. How, how does the way the Convention on Genocide emerged impact the way people since then have discussed and responded to genocide and mass atrocities? That's a great question. I, you know, I spent so much time on the Convention. And, and trust me, it wasn't pleasurable time reading <laughs> every page of the minutes of every meeting of every committee in the UN that had to do with the convention, because I, I think we get so cramped up today by where the, what the genocide convention ended up being. Its actual definition, very restrictive definition, very, very flawed definition. I wanted to get us away from that a little bit by looking back at, at where it started, how Lemkin thought of it. You know, our seminars at AIPR are the Raphael Lemkin seminars. You know, he's the, the inventor of the word. He coined the word genocide. I wanted to start with how did Lemkin conceive? And then I wanted to take readers through how did we get to this final product with which so, so many of us are dissatisfied with? How did we get to it? Because what I want people to see is, there's a much broader way to think about the concept of genocide, and we had thought about it that way from Lincoln on, and then here are the reasons we ended up with this very restricted definition. So for me, it helps me understand, and I think this is Lincoln's essential point, and I think it really is, is lost in what the Genocide Convention becomes, is that there are a lot of ways to destroy a group of people. And as you look at the Genocide Convention, you're left feeling as if the only major significant form of destruction is physical life destruction, actual killing and death. But I think Lemkin's great insight, and, and I trace a bit how we lost this insight, was there are a lot of ways to destroy people. You don't just have to kill them. You can destroy language. You can destroy culture. You can destroy uh, identity. You can destroy religion. And for me, it helps free me up when I think about genocide prevention today, when I understand that there's a broader way of thinking about genocide than simply what we're left with in the convention and what we've been left with in terms of international law. And I find those discussions uh, in the 40s that the UN was having as the genocide convention was developed through three stages, I find those committee discussions fascinating because people are are dealing with the same issues we deal with today, issues like state sovereignty. Well, do we really want to pass a, crime, a law against the crime of genocide if it means another state can interfere in our affairs? With the U.S. looking at it, dealing with, well, do we really want to pass a genocide convention when in our country racial discrimination and segregation is so rampant that maybe we could be accused of genocide? So. All of the things that make people afraid of the word and want to protect themselves, those are inherent in those discussions uh, 50, 60 years ago. And I think they're still part of some of our discussions today as well. For the listeners who are interested in learning more about Lemkin, we, I, I, I interviewed 
Donnelly Fries and, and Stephen Jacobs oh, a year or two ago, and both of them have books about Lemkin or have edited Lemkin's work, and so I would point them to there, and you can find that on the webpage. Um, but one of the things you point out is the way in which um, the way we understand the application of the convention has changed over time. And here I just asked a couple things, one of which you, you talk about the emergence of a body of, and I'm not a lawyer, so I hope I'm getting this right, customary international law that has, that has um, created a set of common legal assumptions about how we treat crimes of mass violence. So, so maybe you can explain what that means. Yeah, I'm not a lawyer either, so we'll just we'll hope that lawyers <laughs> this podcast and we'll be safe. Um, you know, in my classes, uh, when I introduce a genocide convention, one of the exercises I give them is to say, okay, here's a convention, specifically Article 2, that lists the forms of destruction and intent and so on. What are the problems with this article? And freshman undergraduates can look at that article of the convention and realize the limitations of how do you prove intent? What does in whole or in part mean? How many people have to be killed for something to be genocide? I mean, they can unpack the problems with it. So the problems, I think, are clear. But then I follow up with, these are the definitions. You know, this is the limits of this article uh, passed in 46, ratified in 1948. But since then, we have had decades of international law, particularly after Rwanda and uh, former Yugoslavia imploded, decades of international law that have filled in many of the blanks many of the problems with the convention. So in some ways, the convention is not as problematic as it looks on its surface because behind the surface, there's been a lot of international law that has helped us fill in some of those gaps about what intent means, what in whole or in part means. And I think some of that law has been actually law that's been made uh, by judges, legislative traditional law. Some of the law, as you said, has been customary international law, which simply means that enough countries by custom have started to understand the law in this way that it's actually taken on its own force of precedence. So probably the biggest example of that is universal jurisdiction, which means that any country in the world can try to bring to justice any other perpetrators of genocide and atrocity anywhere else in the world, regardless of where the crime was committed or regardless of who the crime was committed against. The convention doesn't allow for universal jurisdiction, but we've had enough practice of universal jurisdiction, beginning with the Eichmann case, over the years that today universal jurisdiction is taken for granted. I mean, it's how international law works by custom, even though it wasn't provided for in the convention. So I try to, as a non-lawyer in the book, bring out some of the legal insights from these developments of international law over the years that help give clarification to some of the limits of, of defining genocide in the convention. And as, as I read that section, what the, one of the big themes that comes out of that is that over time, what has emerged is a set of international norms revolving around human rights and revolving around the, or addressing the rights and responsibilities of government. Um, maybe could you briefly and succinctly and thoughtfully, and I know this is impossible, but maybe you could describe what this set of international norms is. Yeah. No, I think I'll probably go 0 for 3 on all the briefs. <laughs> I'll give it a shot. You know, I think... You raise a great point, Kelly, that this international law related to genocide has been developed in parallel and in some cases in partnership with uh, explosion of international law related to human rights. And I think it, you know, telling that, you know, the Genocide Convention, December 9th, uh, was the first human rights treaty passed by the UN. The very next day, December 10th, the UN passed the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So there's always been a little bit of a twinning between the Genocide Convention and human rights, and we certainly see that um, in international laws that's developed over the years. I think for me, the development of a norm 
you know, what, what uh, Catherine Sinking has talked about is a, a cascade of things that move something from an idea to a norm, something we generally agree on in practice. I, I think I've seen that most specifically in the responsibility to protect norm, or R2P, uh, which is first laid out as a principle in 2001. And really, it's, it's simply the principle that state sovereignty, that a state has a right to be left alone, is not a privilege, but it's a responsibility. And for a state to claim sovereignty, they have to be responsible in how they're treating the people within their state borders, citizen or non-citizen, how they treat those people. And the responsibility to protect, or R2P, says that a state loses that privilege of responsibility when it cannot or will not protect the people within its borders. It's not a legal uh, precedent or practice. It is a norm. It's something that states have agreed to and said, yes, state sovereignty is fundamental, but it can be compromised in the case where the state cannot or will not protect its own people. And the development of that norm, I think, has helped given us a new window to think about genocide prevention, because now we can say to a state, you can't hide behind the shield of sovereignty and be persecuting and killing civilians within your borders, because we have an international norm that I think is really is now emerged as a norm that says, if you can't protect the people in your borders or you won't protect them, then the world does have a right to violate state sovereignty and to step in and protect the people who cannot or are not being protected by your government. So I think when you combine developments in international law and developments of international norms like R2P, um, that is really what has led to the birth of, of this field of genocide prevention. Well, you, you, as you look at various kinds of prevention, um, you, you thread a metaphor throughout the book, uh, a metaphor about a river and, and about people driving, drowning, sorry, not driving. Um, and so I wonder if you could explain this metaphor and say something about how it illustrates the structure of your book. Yeah, uh, the metaphor I draw is one of, uh, as you said, a river, and that you're setting by this river uh, on a sunny day, uh, maybe enjoying a picnic, and down the river floats a body, someone in distress. You jump in to save the person, you pull them out, you get them to shore, but as soon as you get to shore, you turn around and there's another body in the river floating down. You jump in, you pull them out, get to shore, and you turn around and there are five more bodies floating down, and you see this flood of bodies beginning to float down the river. We could stay downriver, downstream, and keep trying to pull people out, but obviously at some point someone's going to say, what's the problem upstream? Why are so many people flowing down this river in such distress? So what I've thought about for genocide prevention is characterizing it in this upstream, midstream, downstream analogy, uh, where upstream means let's see how we can fix the problem before it starts. Upstream, uh, how can we protect a society? against the risk of genocide? How can we inoculate a society against the risk of genocide? So I think part of prevention is upstream. This is before. What we do before the problem starts. Then the second part is midstream. Let's say upstream prevention has failed. Someone has already fallen into the river because we didn't fix the bridge or whatever. Midstream means once they've fallen in, right as a crisis starts, what can we do to prevent the crisis from getting worse. This is the during piece. And so when I think of midstream genocide prevention, I'm trying to say, okay, if we haven't stopped genocide from occurring, once it breaks out, we still try to prevent. We try to prevent it from getting worse. We try to stop it in its tracks, and that's the midstream prevention. And then finally, if we haven't failed, if we didn't succeed at upstream, we didn't succeed at midstream, then we are left downstream, and downstream we're sometimes literally, as we saw in Rwanda, pulling bodies out of the water, pulling uh, uh, corpses out of the river because we failed it upstream, we failed it 
stream, but even here, I want to say prevention still can start downstream. How do we rebuild a society torn apart by genocide? So one of the th things I really wanted to communicate throughout the book is prevention occurs at all stages of the conflict cycle. Before conflict starts, when conflict is ongoing, and after conflict is over, because one of the striking quantitative findings we've had is that one of the greatest risk factors that places society at risk for genocide is have they had a previous genocide? And it puts a society at risk because we may not have spent enough time on rebuilding a society that's been torn apart by genocide. And I think that downstream prevention is important. So the second part of the book has a chapter on upstream prevention, the before piece, a chapter on midstream, the during piece, and a final chapter on downstream, the after piece. So, so in your chapter on upstream prevention, what, what you do is lay out, and it's maybe not a model, but a schema, um, laying out what you see as um, the risk factors, the, the things that put societies at risk for mass violence or, or, or genocide. Um, and I'd like to run through those fairly quickly and have you say a little bit about each one. Um, and so let's start out with governance. What how, what kinds of ways do, do failures or flaws in governance put societies at risk? Yeah, what I've tried to do with each of these four categories that we'll just talk about briefly is I've reviewed all the literature we have in the field on this. And again, that's, that's not a lot of literature. Hmm. The field is relatively new, but it still is a pretty impressive amount. And I've tried to find where do we have the most quantitative support for a risk factor, because we, we have two or three dozen models of risk that are out there that people have constructed, and I've tended to privilege those that have the greatest quantitative support for them and then try to place them in, in one of four broad categories. In the governance category, I think the things we look at that would put a country at risk, and certainly doesn't mean the country is going to have genocide, but would increase risk would be things like the type of regime. We know that democracies tend to be fairly stable regimes, especially well-functioning, mature democracies are the least likely to go to war, the least likely to have genocide. It doesn't mean they won't go to war or won't have genocide, but certainly less likely. So looking at regime type, we're, we concern, we're concerned with, for instance, anocratic regimes, regimes that are in transition from authoritarian to democracy are sometimes backsliding from democracy to authoritarian um, types of regimes. We worry about issues of state legitimacy. Uh, I think we see this, for instance, in several countries in Africa right now, when there is a constitutional change like we've seen in Burundi, we've seen in Rwanda and elsewhere, that allows the president in office to remain in office longer than the Constitution would have allowed for because he chooses to change the Constitution, those type of constitutional changes for the general population raise questions about the legitimacy of the state and the strength of the state, questions of state structures and how weak they are, if the state's involved in uh, leading discrimination or identity-based discussions and divisions. All of those are governance issues that I think we can look at and we can get a snapshot of any country in the world and say, from a governance perspective, to what degree this country might be at risk. And, and probably the final thing I'll say here, Kelly, is just really my book is predicated on the, the belief that every country in the world is at some form of risk for genocide. No country is immune, but countries vary in the degree of risk they're at. And so with this chapter on upstream, I'm trying to unpack how do we understand the degree of risk to which a country is at, and governance is the first of those four factors. Yeah, the other three, and maybe I'll just, just give you a chance collectively to, to say what you want to put the other three together. The other three are conflict history, economic conditions, and social fragmentation. Uh, and my assumption is that one is not more important than the other, um, but rather they all need to be taken into account together. Yeah. That's the perfect assumption, Kelly, is, you know, that I haven't ranked these as saying any of these necessarily more important than the other. This is a combination of factors and risk. And in truth, 
most countries, even those who are very high at risk, genocide still remains a very unusual occurrence. So what we're looking for here is if we can understand countries that are high at risk, and I think we should be scanning globally, we don't leave any country out, but when we see the countries highest at risk, that's what draws our attention and says these are the countries we have to be aware of because if these countries have a natural disaster, an election crisis, an economic crisis, those could be the triggers that push the risk into reality. And so the conflict history, you know, countries have a conflict history, a legacy of uh, vengeance, a legacy of genocide, how that history is communicated, how it becomes really in, instantiated in a past cultural trauma, those things are important for us. I mean, we can't change the history, but how the history is taught, how the history is lived, that helps us understand to what degree a country might be at risk. So in the form of Yugoslavia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, for instance, children pretty much have similar textbooks for math, uh, economics, other uh, things. For history, though, Croats have a textbook, Serbs have a textbook, and Bosniaks, Bosnian Muslims, have a textbook. And each of their textbooks tell different stories. And in every textbook, their people are the victims. And we look at that past cultural trauma and history, and we see it's being taught in a way that increases risk of division, increases risk of hostility in that society. Economic conditions are probably the one in the chapter I struggled most with because we have the least research on economic conditions. But we do know that economic crisis can certainly be one of those triggers that push a country at risk into the reality of genocide, uh, particularly when economic opportunity is uh, distributed unequally, when there's economic discrimination, that's a risk issue, uh, when there's a lack or a low level of economic development. I think we worry here again about countries in Africa that have huge youth bulges, uh, men and women 18 to 24, 25 years of age, but for whom the economy is so devastated, they really don't have opportunity uh, to develop economically. They don't have much choice. They don't have much hope for a future. So for people like that, they have what economists call low opportunity cost. If the chance comes along to participate in violence, there's really no reason for them not to. They, they don't have other options that would make the participation in violence costly to them. So we worry about those things economically. And then finally, social fragmentation. I focus there on, on the issues of, you know, we want in a healthy society a strong sense of social cohesion. Social fragmentation is the other end of that extreme. What happens when identity is so important in a society that you have these deep identity-based social divisions? I'll be uh, uh, working as a visiting honorary professor next uh, uh, spring for my sabbatical at Queen's University in Belfast, Northern Ireland. And Northern Ireland uh, uh, has always been a, a textbook case study of a place where the identity divisions of Protestant and Catholic run so incredibly deep that there's a social fragmentation there that can be remarkable to outsiders. And I'll just give one quick example. Uh, when I spoke at Queen's University several years ago, uh, teaching part of a course, and, and I asked the students who were in their first year at Queens, when was the first time you met someone who was of the other faith, Protestant, Catholic? And every single person in a class of about 25 said, the first time I met someone of another faith was when I came to school at Queens, 18, 19, 20 years of age. Huh. They had spent the first 18 years of their life only knowing other Protestants or only knowing other Catholics. So that type of social fragmentation, and we see a lot of that in terms of gender inequalities throughout the world, I think those things can also be understood as risk factors. So at the end of the day, I think if we look at several indicators in governance, conflict history, economic conditions, social fragmentation, I think we can get a pretty robust picture of the degree to which any specific country in the world is at risk for genocide at a given time. 
So there's a couple observations that at least I, I, I think about from that. And, and one is um, the confidence I hear from you in terms of our ability to at least um, not predict, but analyze the degree of risk that individual societies have doesn't seem to correspond with our willingness to take measures to um, to limit that risk at this stage in that prevention cycle. Um, so, so why is it so hard? And maybe you maybe you disagree, and if so, feel free. But why is it so hard for us to be proactive at that point in the prevention yeah. cycle or whatever? Oh, great question. I think two responses. One is, I think you're spot on in saying we can see these things coming. I mean, the day when we used to say about you know, people said this about Rwanda and Bosnia. Oh, we never saw this coming. We came out of nowhere. I mean, we can't say that any longer. We know enough about countries in the world, and we know enough about risk factors that we should never be surprised when this happens. We, we saw the risk ahead of time. We perhaps saw the trigger, although some triggers like you know, natural disaster, you know, are much more difficult to see. So, so I think we we do have some confidence in knowing what puts a country at risk. But the important question you raise, and my second thing I want to say, is that there's a gap between knowing who's at risk and then making the response. It's called the warning response gap often. And that gap is what we have a hard time jumping. Uh, again, we, we know where the risk is. But the question is, to what degree do we wish to violate state sovereignty in a country high at risk by saying, hey, you've got to get this social fragmentation under control. You've got to get social uh, gender inequalities under control. You've got to do different things with your textbook. I mean, those are things we're still hesitant to, to I think, get involved in, whether it's, it's the UN or whether it's other unilateral, multilateral attempts to do so. So it's, it's not that we don't know the risk. It, it is, once we see the risk somewhere, what options do we have there to, to make a difference? And again, at AIPR, that's a large part of what we're trying to do with government officials is help them understand this is what risk looks like. And the sooner you can respond to these issues of risk, the less costly it is, the easier it is to think about prevention. But still that gap between seeing the risk and actually doing something about it, that's the gap that we have to to develop the political will, the social will, the civic will to say, once we see this risk, these are the things we know we need to do to try and, and reduce the risk. And of course, if we don't see that risk, or that's not fair, I suppose if we don't see the risk, but, but especially if we do not act on our perception of risk, what, what ends up sometimes happening is the outbreak of violence. And you talk about this as, as this midstream prevention. Um, and one of the things that I was struck with, both in your book and in, in, in those of um, Bridget Connolly Zilkich and, and Scott Strauss's, is this sense that armed intervention is the last and possibly worst option. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that's, you know, it's still true today, Kelly, really, whether it's government officials or general public, uh, when I do lectures, that when people hear you speaking about prevention, they immediately assume you're talking about military intervention, and, and it becomes reduced to that. And I think both Scott, Bridget, myself uh, are really a you know one voice on this in large part to say military intervention is a tool in the toolbox for sure. It's a way of responding to crisis, but it's the last one we reach for. It's the last one you look for because it is the greatest violation of state sovereignty, to be sure. You're putting military troops on the ground in someone else's country. But it also, in the immediate, is going to increase casualties. It, it can remilitarize the opposition. And I, I think Bridget does a great job as she talks about military intervention. She calls it really a failure of imagination. And I think I borrowed that phrase from her in the book as well. It really is a failure of creativity, a failure of imagination to say the only way we can stop it once it started is military intervention. Now, I think at some point we do get to that point, but I think the point of, of my work and I 
think is true for Scott and Bridget is to say, before you get to that point, there are a lot of other tools in the toolbox that we have to try. And if we try those and those fail, they're not stopping it, they're not slowing it down, then maybe the point comes where it is military intervention. But that really is the, the tool of last resort. And I think from the framers of R2P all the way through the work in genocide prevention, that I, I think we've really been pretty much of one voice on that. And when we work with government officials at APR and they see us as a predominantly U.S. organization, although we have offices in Poland and Argentina and Uganda, they see us as predominantly U.S. organization. Their first thought is, well, if they're going to talk about genocide prevention, they're talking about U.S. military boots on the ground. And in truth, it's the very last thing we're thinking about. We absolutely don't want to get to that point uh, in intervention uh, where that's how we think about prevention. And, I, and again, I love Bridget's phrase. That's really a failure of creativity. It's a failure of imagination if that's the only way people think of prevention. And one of the one of the, the implications of that then is that there are other lovers you can use or other buttons you can push and, and it seems to me the and, and you say this specifically in your book, the implication of that is or the 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 the, the understanding that we now share about genocide and mass atrocities that make these lovers possible is the idea that the choice to make use of to, to adopt a strategy of mass violence is indeed a rational choice. And that's a that's maybe a new development in the field and one that probably most people who don't follow the field may not be familiar with. You mean that for perpetrators it's a rational choice? Yeah. Yeah. yeah sorry. No, no I, I do. I think you're spot on. That is a relatively new understanding where, you know, we just, we have to admit it. And sometimes people don't want to admit this, but genocide and mass atrocity for perpetrators, it works. It's good politics. It's good strategy. They get to eliminate opposition. And relatively seldom are they going to be brought to justice. By and large, perpetrators of genocide and mass atrocity pretty well are going to escape justice. So we have to recognize that for people who perpetrate this, and again, this is a long, uh, you know, very different from our old understanding that people who perpetrate genocide atrocity are are pathological, they're mentally ill, they're demonic or whatever. I mean, we have to recognize today they're rational. They're using a, a calculated political strategy. And sure, they'll use ancient hatreds to fuel it, but it's not the playing out of ancient hatreds. It is rational, political, calculated strategy to keep power, to keep territory, to keep privilege. And when you recognize it as a rational, calculated form of strategy and policy, then it frees you up preventively to think about prevention in terms of how can we change the calculus of that rationality? How can we make it less rational? How can we help perpetrators in some ways understand different policy options that could possibly meet some of their ends. Now, I think at some point, a perpetrator regime perhaps does get to a point where it simply says, okay, you know, economics, politics, legality aside, we just want to finish the killing. But by and large, that, that point's very long time in reaching that. And so I think when we understand the perpetration of atrocity as a political, rational, calculated strategy on the part of perpetrators, again, it frees us up to think about prevention as calculated, rational, policy-oriented steps rather than simply responding with force to something that we see as agent tribal hatred and force. One of the... So, so the last chapter, the last substantive chapter, is, is about downstream prevention. Um, and when I read this chapter, I was reminded of um, something that happened to me. I was a Fulbright scholar in Austria working on my dissertation in 1994. And I had gotten married shortly, three days before I left. Um, and uh, my wife came to visit me in, in April, and, and we went to Prague. And uh, I was... We had a lovely time there, and and I went to buy our train ticket home, 
And I'd been living in Austria for a while, so I kind of instinctively used German to ask, since I don't speak Czech, I went up to the window at the rail station and, and asked the person there who was selling tickets in German if I could have a ticket back to Vienna. Um, and she looked at me and she closed her window. Hmm. And it was very clear she was not going to deal with me in German. Yeah. And I went to the next window and I used English and I was fine and I bought a ticket. And this was, of course, 45, 50 years after the end of the war and the end of the German occupation and the end of the Holocaust. And, and I've always kind of remembered that as an example of how long these kind of tensions and memories linger. So you talk about downstream prevention then as an effort to um, to change those kind of interpretations of the past and those memories of the past into a way that will allow peoples and societies and countries to move forward rather than looking to a failed past. So, so maybe how how do you define what is transitional justice? Yeah, that's that's great. That was a great example, Kelly. It's really a beautiful example example of what we're talking about when we talk about transitional justice, which in this chapter I frame as really having three pieces to it. One is justice, which we can think of as retributive justice, which is legal, perpetrator-focused, actually you know, bringing people to legal consequences for what they've done, or retributive justice, which is more victim-focused and says, rather than just bringing perpetrators to justice, let's also, as a complement, try to help restore to victims what was lost or taken from them, which in cases of genocide is certainly a difficult thing to do. So I think you have justice, both retributive and restorative. That's one piece of transitional justice. I think a second piece I focus on is uh, truth, the search for truth through truth commissions and so on. And then thirdly, I focus on the issue you raise of memory, of what role does memory play in keeping some of this legacy of, of history and vengeance and group grievance alive. And I think transitional justice at its heart is about how a country transitions from conflict and instability to stability. And for me, the, the thing we can't do is to simply draw a line after the conflict and say, the conflict's over, now we just simply move to periods of stability. Countries try to do that all the time. I don't think that drawing the line works. I think we have to have these complementary mechanisms of justice, truth, and memory. And, and in some cases, as I point out in the chapter, this can't be done right away. I mean, it, it may take decades before a society can start to grapple with what transitional justice means. And sometimes how they come to grips with it you know, it may look silly to the rest of us. In Cambodia right now, we're spending, you know, millions of dollars trying to bring five perpetrators to justice for the Cambodian genocide of 75 to 79. Most of them will die before the trial is over. One suffered from dementia. I, I mean, it, is it really worth the money to bring five elderly people to justice for a crime that happened 45 years ago? Cambodian society has said, for our memory, for our justice, for our truth, we know it was more than five people, but this is important, really in a, almost a symbolic way for this to happen. Apologies in the U.S. for slavery. Apologies to Native Americans. Do those apologies restore land? Do they restore money? Do they restore anything that was taken away? Not not generally, no, really not at all. But they're symbolic statements of government that are part of the process of healing and transitional justice. So I think what we know for sure about transitional justice is it's necessary. We don't know how long it takes. We don't know if it can come too early, if it can come too late. But we know that it, it has to come and societies have to rebuild. And now we cycle back to risk factors. If a society doesn't have this pursuit of justice, truth, and memory, they leave themselves at risk in the future. Huge risk, actually, for the reoccurrence of these type of atrocities in their society. So this, again, is where I go back to say, we're always preventing. We try to prevent before, we try to prevent during, but afterwards, we're trying to prevent through the use of transitional justice measures as well. 
So this is a much more recent kind of, I don't know if innovation, but emergence in terms of, of practices of prevention. If we had enough, and, and, and as you said, there are many things we don't know. Are there things we know? Do we have a sense of best practice? Um, it's a great point. Transitional justice really is, is a relatively recent field. I think the best practices piece here is still yet to be ter- determined, to be honest. I mean, some people just assume that retributive justice, punishing perpetrators, is itself uh, certainly preventive. I don't think we have evidence for that. I, you know, and in my own work with perpetrator psychology, I think perpetrators live in an expanded time where when they're perpetrating the atrocities, they're not worried about the International Criminal Court. They're not worried about being brought to justice. They're living in the time of their atrocities, and they really have a difficult time seeing outside of that. So I don't know if retributive justice has the preventive implications that sometimes people think it has. I think memory is, is a contested area. Uh, is, it, is it possible, for instance, for a society to have too much memory? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's possible. I mean, I, again, spend time in Northern Ireland. Uh, there's a lot of memory in Northern Ireland, and that memory is not necessarily healing. It's very divisive. So can a society have too much memory? Uh, certainly a society can have too little memory. So I think for me, what's what's exciting about the field of transitional justice is exactly the point you raise. It's new enough that we don't know the best practices. We know it has to be done. How it has to be done, when it has to be done, those are things I think we're still unpacking. So as I pointed out earlier, um, this, this series is in some sense kind of prompted by the fact that you and Scott and Bridget all came out with books at about the same time that in one way or another addressed a similar theme. What does it say about the field of genocide studies that that can happen? Where are we at in this field that genocide prevention has suddenly emerged as a really important topic? You know, I think it's, and I think Bridget's been particularly important here in laying some of the boundaries of the field itself, but I think it's it's part of the zeitgeist of a field that has moved from just the history of genocide to a broader interdisciplinary study of genocide, and has moved from case studies to looking at the, and maybe then embracing finally the recognition that what we do in genocide studies is never simply going to be history. It's always, you know, it's ubiquitous. We're going to keep facing it year after year after year. And the recognition that the historical study of it, and I'll say this carefully because I know you're a historian, but <laughs> historical study of it is not going to be sufficient yeah. unless that study leads us to some measures of prevention. And some of it also, honestly, Kelly, is, is a generational issue that you've had younger scholars coming into the field, many of them who have survived genocide, who are coming to it saying, I study it because I want to prevent it. I mean, that is the reason for the existence of the field. So I just think you have an emergence of factors and and the United Nations continuing to try to focus on making never again a reality. I think you have a confluence of factors that just made it the right time for people like Bridget, Scott Stroud, myself to feel like there's enough here that we can start to lay out some parameters of what the field of genocide prevention is and and what good practices have started to develop in the field. So um, you say in the introduction um, that the central argument of the book, and I, I think I transcribed this right, I may be a word or two off. The central argument of the book is that the world as it is is not the world as it has to be. I'm wondering, are you are you optimistic in the future? You know, I am. I, I I would say, you know, I get a chance to do a ton of public lectures every year across the country and the world, and great privilege and opportunity. And it's the most common question I'll get from the audience afterwards is, how do you do this work? Aren't you terribly pessimistic? How can you be optimistic? Uh, you know, and and I think for me, if I had just stayed working in perpetrator behavior. And I still do work in that area. But if that was all I did, yeah, it's pretty difficult to see a light at the end of the tunnel when you're interviewing people who committed these types of atrocities. But what I've learned about working in the field of genocide prevention is 
recognize this is a human problem. We've created, mm -hmm. we're the ones who do this to each other. And I really do believe if it's a human problem, it has it's a human solution. We can choose to do other things. We can choose to interact in other ways. And really, Kelly, the, the optimism I take from it, the hope I take from it, comes from the government officials I work with, civil society people around the world I work with, scholars like you who work in the field in Britain, Scott, and all the people you've interviewed, students I work with. There are tons of people in the world committing themselves to making a world a difference on this problem. And I just refuse to believe that we can't be successful in that. Our friends in Africa will say one of the proverbs you often hear is, how do you eat an elephant? You eat it one bite at a time. Hmm. And I think, how do you solve this problem? We solve it one bite at a time. And if we have enough of us taking bites out of this, I absolutely fundamentally believe we can make a difference. And we can make this world a more tolerant place, a more accepting place, and a place in which people don't have to live in fear of their own governments or of non-state actors who wish to exterminate them. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, um, and I will say, my although I know you've got a week left to go before your students show up, I, my students show up today, and I will start teaching on Monday, which leaves me one weekend before I grade for 15 weeks. Um, <laughs> what should I read that weekend? Can you suggest a book, or maybe watch a book or two, or maybe a movie um, that made an impact on you? whether it's an older book or a new book, something that's directly related to your research or something more me personally meaningful, uh, what would you recommend to me and the listeners? Yeah, you know what? Uh, something I typically return to, and you mentioned her earlier in the conversation, Donna Lee Freeze, who I know you've interviewed, but Donna's book, uh, the totally unofficial, the autobiography of Raphael Lemkin, came out last year, I think, at about this time, as I was doing a good amount of the writing for uh, for my own book, and I've worked a lot with Lincoln's papers, but I think Donna just did such a beautiful job pulling together in a more coherent way Lincoln's writings uh, about genocide. And, and when I go into the genocide course, one of my first lectures is always on Lincoln, and I, I love going back through his papers, and I, I love, love going back through Donna's book just to remind myself of where he started. And again, that insight of, of there are a lot of ways to destroy a people. And for me, uh, you know, Donna's uh, recollection here of Lemkin's writings and, and the process of the convention, I find all that incredibly inspirational. As flawed a person as he was in some ways, Lemkin had a commitment to this that for me is, is inspirational. So I enjoyed that book very much when it came out, I find myself looking over it again as I prepare for my course in the fall, and it just reminds me of the importance of the shared work that we do. So the last question, which can either be taken as a, as a congratulations or perhaps a burden, what, what are you working on now that you're done with this book? Oh, thanks. That's, yeah, that's the question every author hates right after a book is out is what's the next one you know i'm a division chair the first thing i ask my faculty is what are you doing now exactly um you know this I, i'm actually going to complete a trilogy i had becoming evil as the first book this one's confronting evil i'm in talks with oxford about a third book called legacies of evil hmm. which is going to focus on uh, interesting enough the question you raised about transitional justice i'm very interested in this justice truth memory paradigm of understanding how post-conflict society rebuilds itself. So I don't know at this point whether Legacies of Evil will focus on genocide comparatively, or there's a good chance that I'll focus Legacies of Evil on Northern Ireland specifically, just because I'll be there uh, for six months next year uh, as a visiting professor. But I think after Legacies of Evil, that'll complete the Evil trilogy, and then I'm going to just start developing a line of coloring books about birds and flowers and just <laughs> simple things that give me something different to think about for a while. My favorite answer to this question that I've ever heard was from Mark Levine, who, for those listeners who don't know, has written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands of pages in a part of an ongoing series on genocide. 
his answer was a very kind of amused, well, I'm going to go garden because I've been writing for years. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was a very appropriate answer. Yeah, absolutely. But Jim, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope uh, when you're done with this next project, you'll come back and, and uh, talk with us on the show. But um, I wish you a great semester and a great time in Ireland. Oh, thanks, Kelly. And uh, best to you and all the listeners as well. You've been listening to an interview with James Waller about his new book, Confronting Evil. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. Later this summer, we'll continue our occasional series of podcasts that address the question of how genocides might be prevented or mitigated with an interview with Carrie Booth Walling. Next time, however, we'll turn our focus to the question of how best we can learn from and engage with interviews with Holocaust survivors. I'll talk about this with Noah Schenker, the author of Reframing Holocaust Testimony. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.